On this episode of China Unscripted, the U.S. may be saying the right things about Taiwan, but is it taking the right actions? Could keeping the status quo with Taiwan actually be putting the U.S. in more danger? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang, and I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us once again today is Ian Easton, senior director of the Project 2049 Institute. Ian, it's great to have you back on. Chris, Matt, Shelley, it's、uh, great to see you guys. Thanks for having me back on the show. Well, so you know, it's it's the new year. So, what are the Chinese Communist Party's plans for Taiwan? Especially, you know, since at the end of the year it's going to be the twentieth Party Congress and a very important meeting for the Communist Party. So, what can we expect? Well, that is a very good question. Uh, I guess there's three possible scenarios for the year ahead. One is that we see the Chinese Communist Party continue the pattern of behavior that we've seen in, in recent years, where they steadily increase tensions、uh, year on year. And so we could see that again this year, where they start to do things that are even more coercive than what we saw last year. And of course, last year was a was a pretty intense year、uh, in the Taiwan Strait area. So that could continue that pattern of of、uh, coercion. But to your question, the Twentieth Party Congress is coming、uh, this fall, and so there is a possibility. I don't think it's likely, but there is a possibility that Xi Jinping and his comrades in the Political Bureau and、uh, the Standing Committee might decide to focus. More on other issues, especially、uh, internal issues, domestic political issues, and that they actually、uh, turn the heat down a little bit on Taiwan.、Uh, that that is possible that they downplay、uh, their intentions for Taiwan.、Uh, and of course, there's a third scenario that is there's a significant uptick in tensions this year, and that they do things that are really extraordinary、uh, and really provocative. So. You know, last year there there were periods of time where analysts thought that the People's Liberation Army might make a move on some of Taiwan's outer islands.、Uh, that is still something that's possible,、uh, and of course, there's always the possibility for an accident or miscalculation or surprise attack. I know,、um, you know, Tai taking over Taiwan is is central to the party's idea of national rejuvenation. Do you think? You know, Xi Jinping at the Party Congress wants to be essentially declared leader for life. Do you think, in order to do that, he will feel like he has to take Taiwan? No, no. I, I think he,、uh, he's already in a position to be a dictator for life. I think he's already done a lot of a lot of extraordinary things, a lot of very troubling things in the last,、uh, really, in the last ten years to set himself up. To become、uh, leader for life of the People's Republic of China,、uh, he's already engaged in sweeping purges across the board.、Uh, he's engaged in some very,、uh, very authoritarian, dictatorial behavior, and, and I think he's already set himself up for that.、Um, I don't think he would need to do anything else, frankly, to justify、uh, the continuation of his leadership.、Uh, the problem, though, I think for Taiwan is. That Xi Jinping and, frankly, the the broader party apparatus around him are very very hawkish, and they are very 
prone to take risk. That's a pattern of behavior that we've seen in the past 10 years. And, uh, and so that does not bode well for the future. Well, personally, I, I feel a bit relieved to hear you say that because, you know, all of our merchandise is geared towards Xi Jinping as leader of the Communist Party. If he were replaced, <laughs> we'd be we'd be in trouble. Go to ChinaUncensored.tv slash merchandise to I look at our great- I was not thinking that's where you're going to go with that. That's why I'm two steps ahead of you. Yeah, ahead. That's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think one thing that uh, often gets lost in the conversation about uh, China's military intentions towards Taiwan is, you know, we look at like the record number of, of jets flying into uh, Taiwan's air defense zone. But what gets lost is just how much effort the Communist Party is putting into its military buildup globally getting strategic ports, uh, investing in critical infrastructure. What do you think these uh, sort of more global actions and ambitions, how does that tie into Taiwan? Well, that's a fantastic question. Um, and it's true. The Chinese Communist Party said, has- I asked the fantastic question, not you, Sheldon. <laughs> they, they have invested in extraordinary- access to critical infrastructure around the world. And in fact, they're building it. They, they now uh, own and operate uh, around 100 port facilities around the world. So not just in East Asia or Southeast Asia, but also in the Middle East, also in Africa, also in Europe and South America and the, the Caribbean. Uh, and so they are everywhere. And they've done this under the, the veneer of pure commercial and economic uh, activity. But once you peel that back just a little bit, uh, it becomes clear that they actually have militarized many of these projects and that they intend to militarize many more in the future. And in fact, they've not, at this point, they're not even trying to hide it, that they've actually codified this into PRC law that all Chinese entities abroad, all ostensibly commercial entities, have to follow military civil fusion. Uh, in other words, they have to install Trojan horses, back doors uh, into their infrastructure that allows the Chinese intelligence services and the People's Liberation Army to access that data, that information, and to leverage some of that critical infrastructure, uh, some of those logistics nodes in the event of a conflict. And so what does that mean for the future? What does that mean for you know, a nightmare scenario in which China attempts to invade Taiwan? Uh, well, in a scenario like that, the U.S. military and its allies are going to be mobilizing. They're going to be moving forces around the world, including through key maritime choke points, places like the Panama Canal. So if Chinese industry, uh, Chinese companies, uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, if they are controlling places like that, how is the United States military, how are allied militaries going to be able to, to access that? I think that's a very important question. And I think it still remains somewhat unexplored. Uh, could you give an example of a port where if you look at it, it's clear it's been militarized instead of just commercial? Uh, yes. So the port in uh, Djibouti, there is a uh, PRC uh, commercial port there. And right next to the port, They've uh, extended that to build a very large military base. 
And that military base now has a very large garrison of Marines and potentially PLA Special Forces troops. They have a, a large tarmac that can be used for uh, helicopters and also for drones. Uh, and in fact, they've actually installed a military-grade uh, laser system, which they started to use, I believe, in 2018 to blind, um, the temporarily blind. I mean, it's not for life, but uh, it's very dangerous to, to temporarily dazzle or blind uh, U.S. military pilots that are flying in and out because there are a number of countries that have military bases there. It's a, a very strategic location. Uh, and so the U.S. has a, a base there. The French have a base there. The Japanese, the Italians uh, all have bases there. And so China has built this, this base and they've built it on the back of what, what started as civilian infrastructure. Uh, this has actually also happened in Argentina out in the Patagonian desert where they started construction, I believe, in 2013. And it was supposed to be a, a pure science project. It was, it was cooperation between China's space program and, and Argentina's space program. But very quickly, by I believe 2015, it became clear that this was going to be a PLA space base. And it was going to be PLA only, that Argentina was not uh, welcome to have staff there on the compound. It's, it's, a, it's a compound that's surrounded by high razor wire fences. And local government, uh, including from Buenos Aires, can't even access it without being invited first and escorted around by uh, Chinese military personnel. And so that's another example of a facility. Now, that's not a port facility. Uh, that is a, a space facility that, that they've actually militarized um, under the veneer of what initially appeared to be, in that case, a science project. And so that's another area uh, where they'll go in and they will uh, talk about development and cooperation and countries will sign on to it thinking that they're going to get, you know, economic benefits or scientific benefits or, or technological benefits or whatever it may be, and then ultimately see their own sovereign soil, um, in a sense, taken away from them and exploited by the Chinese military. Well, I know the U.S. is particularly concerned right now of um, a, a port in Equatorial Guinea that uh, China seems to be interested in doing the same thing to making it a deep water port with potential military uh, applications, which would essentially give the Chinese Communist Party the ability to project power into the Atlantic Ocean, which would be a pretty big shift in balance of power. That's right. Uh, that was a very interesting story that came out uh, in December. And it's interesting because of the location. And it's also interesting because it's indicative of a much broader trend. I mean, the Chinese government has tried to secure an airbase in Greenland, of all places. Uh, they tried to secure an airbase in the Azores, uh, also in the Atlantic. Um, they've made a move on a port in, uh, I believe, in UAE, the United Arab Emirates, on the Persian Gulf. And, the, and they're starting to do that uh, around the world. Uh, where they actually already operate these logistical hubs. You know, the, the Chinese government operates a port in Australia. They operate four major container ports in Mexico. Um, they're in Greece, uh, Greece's largest container port, uh, two or three of Europe's largest container ports. On the surface, those are all commercial uh, operations, and they have been commercial operations. I think what's concerning for the Department of Defense and, and uh, the national security community 
more broadly in our country and in other democracies is uh, that pattern where the, the PLA starts to come in and those uh, facilities start to be militarized. And so you think ultimately this is uh, a way for the Chinese Communist Party to interfere with the United States' ability to project military power into Asia, into the defense of Taiwan? Yeah, I do. I think there, there's very little question that they're doing this with a strategic end in mind. Um, now, there's the broader strategic goal of increasing Chinese Communist Party influence, political influence more broadly on a global basis. But in the event of a Taiwan scenario, something that the Chinese government military thinks about a lot and plans for and is investing extraordinary resources into, all of those facilities could potentially be used to interfere with, to disrupt, and to delay uh, U.S. and allied uh, military uh, movements where you would have ships, for example, or planes or satellites being moved uh, to position them to defend Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it's even less, uh, how to say, less easily observable than that. Like, like say that they've got this uh, strategic port in Djibouti, which has direct access to the Suez Canal, right? So imagine if the, you know, in the event of war, the Communist Party basically blocks international shipping through this key area. And then it's actually uh, major US corporations and European corporations that are then lobbying the, the Western governments to not engage in war so that they can resume their shipping. And imagine how much power, whether it's Wall Street or the city of London or other institutions have on politics, right? It's, it's the way that the, you know, the anti-war movement affected the outcome of the Vietnam War 50 years ago. Uh, but you could also have, in this case, not so much protests, but, but actual corporate lobbying changing the outcome of the war because the, the Communist Party has made it so disruptive for those companies. Yeah, Matt, that is such a good point. Um, I do think that they are exploiting all of these avenues, you know, commercial, industrial, trade, uh, technological, um, their control over countries' uh, supply chains for critical infrastructure and also critical equipment. And we, of course, we, we've seen this on multiple occasions uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, where China's government has leveraged its, uh, its really its stranglehold over international supply chains of things like PP&E uh, for a political end. And that certainly is something that we should expect to see happen in the event of a Taiwan scenario. And in fact, it's, it's probably something that's happening already. And it may account for the fact that in spite of some really good rhetoric that we've seen over the last year or two from fellow democracies expressing support for Taiwan, uh, very little action actually to um, put anything behind those words. I mean, look at what uh, the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do to Lithuania right now on an economic level, not just stopping trade with Lithuania itself, but pressuring uh, European countries that want to do business with China, uh, not European countries, European companies that want to do business with China to not do business with Lithuania. And it's interesting with Lithuania. It's not like Lithuania has like 
broken off ties with the PRC and have diplomatically officially recognized Taiwan, they have only like done like a very little bit of uh, a show of support for Taiwan. It was it began with like having a trade em- like a representative office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're essentially the Taiwan embassy, which they can't call an embassy, used the word Taiwan, right? Instead of Taipei. Mm-hmm. And just opening one, I think. Yeah. Too, right. So yeah. So like a very minor show of support for Taiwan was enough to kick off this entire situation. So we, we we've been talking about these uh, the potential for these economic ports to become militarized, uh, but you know you were mentioning the the current economic leverage the Chinese Communist Party already has through these ports and through a variety of other factors. How is China? using its economic leverage to further undermine Taiwan. Shelley gave a great example of Lithuania. Yeah, I think Lithuania is a great example. We've seen this with um, airlines around the world. We've also seen this with uh, major car brands, companies around the world having to change their websites around, um, having to minimize Taiwan's presence in Hollywood movies, for example. Uh, I know media... A lot of media companies have come under some pressure not, not to talk about Taiwan or to talk about Taiwan in a certain way and not to mention maybe other things. So, for example, you will very rarely see American newspapers or CNN or others talk about the Republic of China, which, of course, is the official name of Taiwan's government. Um, they will talk just about Taiwan and they'll talk about Taiwan as a renegade province. Um, in other words, they'll, they'll use the, the kind of jargon that the Chinese Communist Party would prefer. And, you know, by doing that, shape the narrative uh, in a certain way that favors Beijing and not Taiwan or, or not even the United States. It's, it's not uh, objective truth, right? And, and it's also complicated, of course, because United States policy when it comes to Taiwan is not based on objective reality. It's not based on uh, empirical evidence or, or, or the facts of the matter. It's based on political expedience and um, precedents that were set in the late 1970s and early 1980s, which at the time made good political and diplomatic sense. But, but today, in view of events, uh, appear a bit less wise. Yeah, it's interesting that the... Uh- the U.S. policy on Taiwan is so hard to understand for lay people is that uh, often uh, reporters will just mix up the Chinese Communist Party's One China policy with America's One China policy. I see people who are kind of Taiwan experts complain about this all the time. The idea that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to get the world to believe that everybody believes their One China policy, which is that Taiwan is part of China and the PRC is China. They use that to kind of confuse people. But the U.S. policy is so unclear to most people that they actually think, oh, yeah, it's the same thing, right? Well, it's very unclear, actually, to U.S. government um, officials as well, because the U.S. policy is intentionally vague. It's intentionally confusing. It's intentionally ambiguous. It's not clear. And does that serve the American interests? Probably not. Um, I think it, it's the favorable outcome for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, I don't think that that 
does us any any favors as a nation. You know, we're a country that believes in transparency. Uh, we thrive on transparency. Uh, we rely on it. Uh, we need the facts to make good decisions. And to have the U.S. government actually intentionally obscure the facts and to have different government websites say different things. So, for example, if you go on the, the State Department website, they, there's a certain type of jargon that they use, which is very confusing about Taiwan. They don't refer to it as a country. They don't refer to Taiwan's government. They refer to the, the Taiwanese authorities or the Taiwan authorities, uh, just by way of example. And there's a lot of other strange jargon that they use. Then you go, if, for example, if you go to CIA's website, they actually refer to Taiwan as a country. And they actually have the Taiwan's national flag on their website. If you go to the CIA, uh, CIA World Factbook, um, and you can see the Republic of China flag, you know, Taiwan's flag. Um, and they do refer to Taiwan as a country. They have a country page for it. Now, it's still a little vague. Uh, their description is probably could use a, a bit more uh, clarity. Uh, but it is interesting when you when you look at that and you see that even within the U.S. government, there's confusion here. Why do you think there is that discrepancy between the State Department and the CIA? And I'm sure it also exists between the other departments as well, Commerce and Treasury and uh, DOD. And this is, I think it's the legacy of some policy decisions that were made a very long time ago, uh, before any of us were born. And we're still stuck with those to this day because so far we've not had an administration, uh, either Republican or Democrat, come along and revisit that. We have not seen any fundamental uh, revisit of, uh, of our Taiwan policy, which is based on the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979, uh, President Reagan's six assurances to Taiwan, which I believe were made in 1982, and then the three, the, uh, three communiques. Uh, to the PRC, which is 19, I believe, 1972, uh, 79, and then 82. So that was a very long time ago. And, and we're still stuck with that. The world has changed in a remarkable fashion since then. China has changed, obviously. Taiwan has changed. Um, I mean, Taiwan is, has gone from being a military dictatorship, which is what it was in the 1970s and early 1980s, into now one of the freest countries on the planet. Uh, and yet we still are stuck with this legacy framework. So, nope. Ian, if you were in charge of the U.S. government's Taiwan policy, what do you think we should do? Um, well, I don't know. I think this is something that needs to be studied. I, and that's, for me, it, it's it's one of the unfortunate realities of, of the community that I'm in, the think tank community, that there have not been more studies of U.S.-Taiwan relations. Now, I, of course, there have been some, and I'm, I'm biased because I've been involved um, in some of those, but there's very little, actually, and there's very little appetite uh, to revisit some of these fundamental questions. Now, last year, we did see a very good, very rich debate about strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity. But that's just one issue. That's just a military issue. That's just a defense issue. What's even bigger and broader and more important than that is our political relationship towards Taiwan, our diplomatic relationship, uh, our vision for the future. 
Uh, and I think this is something that, that needs to be studied. We, we need to come up with uh, some very good ideas for the future of how do we develop a more normal, stable, and constructive uh, relationship to with Taiwan, uh, to, to borrow some of the phraseology um, invented by, by uh, my colleague Mark Stokes here at the Project 2049 Institute. Um, how do we do that? Uh, and how do we normalize? Because I think it is clear we need to have a more normal, stable, and constructive relationship with Taiwan. Uh, we don't today. Uh, we need to, to do that. We need to move towards diplomatic normalization. Uh, but how do we do that in, in a way that is incremental enough and cautious enough that we don't uh, inadvertently trigger the very thing that, that we all want to avoid, and that's conflict in, in the Taiwan Strait. But how do we weigh that, that risk, against what is probably an even graver risk of just maintaining the status quo, of just doing nothing at all, of being paralyzed? Because if we stay on the path that we're on today, conflict in the Taiwan Strait is almost certain. Uh, it's almost certain uh, because we're on a path right now where we're actually inadvertently contributing to Taiwan becoming more and more isolated, more and more vulnerable uh, and weaker over time. Uh, and uh, as we've seen many times throughout history, whenever you have a revanchist, authoritarian, hungry, ambitious leader like Xi Jinping, who's in charge of, of a communist uh, dictatorship like the People's Republic of China, and their strength is growing, and they're openly advertising their desired end state, which is to take over Taiwan and destroy Taiwan's democracy. Um, and other countries don't um, do anything if they just maintain the status quo. Uh, they don't rally to the side of that smaller, vulnerable democracy. Uh, the outcome is almost always very, very dark. Uh, and so that's something that obviously we want to avoid. That's something the U.S government needs to work very hard on. And I think some of those discussions are underway now. But again, so far, uh, while the rhetoric has been very, very good, very strong, um, not that much is being done yet. And I think that's remarkable, actually, um, how there's that say-do gap that's there and just how big that gap is. So Shelley asked you a question, which is, what should we do about Taiwan? But let me uh, ask a slightly different question, which is, what should our relationship with Taiwan look like, ideally, irrespective of how we get there? Well, I think that's obvious. We Ideally, we would want to have normal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. We would want to treat Taiwan just like we treat any other country. We, we would want to have an embassy in Taipei. Would right. Taiwan have nukes? Um, I'm not a big fan of nuclear proliferation, um, but I do think that if we want to avoid it, we would have to extend our nuclear umbrella um, to include Taiwan. The way today it includes South Korea, it includes Japan, it includes the Philippines, Thailand, and Australia. Um, I think if we don't want to see countries proliferate or not proliferate and then get invaded, um, I think at some point in the next, and I don't know what the timeline would look like, next 10 years perhaps or 20 years, uh, that we're going to have to uh, extend our nuclear umbrella to include Taiwan. You mentioned 
you mentioned, Ian, that if we keep going the way we are, if the status quo, there will be almost inevitable conflict. Do you think that's something that is clear to the U.S. government right now? I don't know, but I get the impression that there's a debate going on. And we've all read about this, right? Where last year you have admirals, four-star admirals and generals coming out and, and now talking about potential timelines. And it's bizarre. For me, it is bizarre to see the top military officers in our country come out and debate uh, when China will be ready to invade Taiwan and when they think it might happen. You know, there's um, one school of thought that says 2027, others say before then, others say after then. And of course, nobody knows because nobody can predict the future. But it's really remarkable and I think very troubling to to know that there is this debate that's going on in the halls of power in Washington, D.C., and in the Pentagon and in our combatant commands, like, you know, out in Honolulu, for example, where they're, they're seriously asking these questions and they're seriously worried that this is coming. And there's a sense that deterrence is failing. Our ability to, to prevent war is, is diminishing very quickly, especially when it comes to China, and that that this may actually happen. Um, and I think if you look at this from uh, the perspective of deterrence theory, and the, again, I, this is not something I'm an, an expert in by, by any means, um, but I've spoken to some professors who, who know a lot about deterrence theory and, and studied this, uh, the way it worked in the Cold War. And the impression that I've gotten is that there's no, there's no theory of deterrence that that works when it comes to Taiwan. Um, and so we need to do something different um, than we're doing today. I think that that's very clear. We need to be able to come up with a roadmap to, to normalize the relationship with Taiwan and to do it in a wise fashion. Because if we don't, if, if we continue on the path that we're on right now, where we actually isolate Taiwan, that we treat Taiwan essentially like a diplomatic pariah state, uh, Taiwan's not allowed in the United Nations. Uh, it's not, you know, the president of Taiwan, the foreign minister of Taiwan, uh, ta top Taiwanese officials are not welcome uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, Taiwan has bombers. You know, we saw this last October where in the span of, of just a few days, uh, China's Air Force conducted a, a massive uh, drill where they were sending, uh, I believe the total was about 150 uh, warplanes into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Obviously, a very provocative move. Um, very worrisome if you're in Taiwan and on your radars, you start to see dozens of Chinese bombers coming your way, uh, only to turn around at the last minute. Um, and what, what the U.S. government's response to that was for our president to get on the phone uh, with Xi Jinping and not the president of Taiwan. I thought that was an odd, uh, an odd choice that was made. I, I can't think of any other country in the world where, in a scenario where they're facing that type of very overt military uh, coercion, where our president uh, doesn't call their president, that they don't even talk to each other, that, that the U.S. government doesn't overtly send a message of political support. And unfortunately, that has been 
a, a policy decision that was made a very long time ago. And it's not unique to the, the Biden administration. The Trump administration did the exact same thing. The Obama administration did the exact same thing. Uh, and it goes it goes back. Uh, and so I think these are the types of, of policy decisions that, that really ought to be revisited because I don't think it's going to be uh, a good thing for strategic stability for us to continue on this path. Uh, and there are a number of other examples of things that the United States government would normally do with other democracies that face these types of threats uh, that we don't do with Taiwan. Do you think the reason the U.S. is being held back on like taking these strong stances on Taiwan is because, in general, the United States seems to be unwilling to really confront the Chinese Communist Party as a threat as a whole? that Taiwan is being swept up in in the entire U.S. policy towards China, that we still want to, we want to pretend that they are not a hostile communist regime. We want to pretend that they're not committing genocide. You know, that the-, the, the I mean, the, we've the, said they're committing genocide. Said, but we're still doing business with them. Yeah. Well, but not, not with Xinjiang, but, you know, the rest of China is okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, we'll say like, oh yeah, they're committing genocide. Don't do business with Xinjiang, but it's okay to still do business with that government. It's crazy. So is that outlook, that that fundamental view of China and the Chinese Communist Party holding back meaningful action on Taiwan? Uh, I, I think you're right about that, Chris. I think that there's been this ossification or calcification of of our of our of our brain in Washington, you know, of, of policymaking uh, over the past 40 years, where for a very long time, the policy of the United States government was to treat China like it was a normal country and not a communist country in the hopes that one day China would be a normal country and, and not a communist country. Uh, that was long our policy. Uh, and it was based on really, it turns out in retrospect, uh, it was based on mythical thinking. It was based on hope and not reality. It was based on anecdotal evidence from I guess, diplomats and journalists uh, in Beijing and not on empirical evidence of here's what Chinese government documents actually say, or here's what, you know, Xi Jinping is actually saying in his speeches or, or PLA generals or, or others, for example, um, that we've had a very troubled China policy. And even though the Trump administration started to make some significant moves to reform our policy and to change our policy and to be much more uh, proactive in protecting American national interests. And even though the Biden administration in some very important ways has continued that, we still have, as a nation, we have still have so much hard work to do. And, you know, I, I guess it just goes to show it's easy to change your talking points. That's relatively easy. What's much harder to do is to change your actions. And so far, that is what the U.S. is clearly struggling with. Uh, we're really struggling as a country with how do we change the way we do business with China? And that is a significant challenge. And so, you know, one of the, the questions that I, I have, and I, I would warmly welcome your thoughts on this, is... Do you guys think that this year, the year 2022, 
might actually be a turning point where we start to see a lot of the good rhetoric that that came out of the Trump administration on China and then on the Biden administration on China. Um, we start to see that actually transformed into action. Uh, what, what do you guys think about that? Well, personally, um, I feel like from the Trump to the Biden administration, there has definitely been a change in how China is discussed. And perhaps more importantly, you know, when I began China Censored almost 10 years ago, I did it because no one in the U.S. was really talking about China, not like your average American citizen. Like it, China was still the land of mists and dragons and like Kung Fu, whatever. Now, it seems like everyone knows something about China, and often it is a negative viewpoint of the Chinese Communist Party. So I definitely think that the tide is turning because if more and more of the American public is knowledgeable about what the Chinese Communist Party is, inevitably that is going to create pressure on the U.S. government and on U.S. companies. Yeah, but there's another factor to look at here. It's like, like let's say we want to do something like um... – you know, establish a formal military base on Taiwan or or uh, establish formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan or even any of the the numerous intermediary steps. What's the like what's the real barrier to that? Is it, you know, the the US government or is it Taiwan's government that doesn't want to spark a war by allowing the US to to do these things? Right? I mean, doesn't wouldn't Taiwan push back as well if the U.S. said we want to treat you as a for formally as a country now? You know, that is something that that deserves to be tested. Um, my impression is that Taiwan's government, um, whether it's in their presidential office or in their foreign ministry, they really feel isolated and they really feel um, alone that they are standing up against the entire might of the Chinese Communist Party and its armed wing, uh, the PLA, really by themselves. And they're having to deal with all of this coercion by themselves. And aside from some very nice um, words of support from our president and the prime minister of Japan and, and uh, the Australian government and countries like Lithuania, um, it you get beyond those those words and they're, and they're very good words you know they make me very happy when i when i hear them or or read them in the newspaper but then when you look at what are we actually doing um are we actually sending cabinet officers to taiwan to visit and the answer is no are we sending any of our top uh generals or civilian officials from the state department or the pentagon to taiwan and the answer is no uh we're, we're sending colonels for example, on the military side, you'd have colonels go. You might have a one or two star general go, um, but they do it secretly um, and you, you never learn about it or you learn about it uh, only after the fact or if it's leaked. Uh, but we're not sending high level officials. Um, the Secretary of Defense is not going to Taiwan or even an undersecretary, for, for example. And that's also true in the State Department. Uh, we're not moving towards a free trade agreement with Taiwan, even though Taiwan's government has made I guess, to, and again, I'm, I'm a little outside of my uh, my area of uh, knowledge, such as it is. Um, but I, as I understand, they've made con some considerable concessions to the U.S., and the U.S. is still not making any moves towards a, uh, a free trade agreement uh, 
with Taiwan, just by way of example. And so this is not just a, a military security issue. This is across the board. And it really is remarkable how little so far uh, the United States and other democracies are actually doing to show solidarity with Taiwan in spite of this awakening, I think, that's happened over the last 12 or 18 months uh, regarding how important Taiwan is for everybody's interests, you know, how, the, how important the, the stability of the Taiwan Strait area is for all of us, um, and in spite of the fact that um, it's now increasingly clear that, that China is moving toward m- much more coercive uh, and much more dangerous posture towards Taiwan. Right. But my question is more like if, for example, Biden picked up the phone and called Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen, would she pick up the phone? If Biden invited her for a state visit to the White House, would she come? Like, I think Tsai would definitely yeah. pick up the phone. She picked up the phone for Trump. And she has toured <laughs> the U.S. Trump. several times. I mean, I think but, like. But I mean, like, but what? But like, I think that the risk to Taiwan. I think that is conventional things, right? thinking. That's that kind of calcified thinking that Ian is talking about, because I have heard yeah, this Matt, argument. Matt, you've got some real calcified you, thinking. No, no, no. Are I'm you not... accusing me of having calcified thinking? Because you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying that particular point of, um, you know, and I don't think you believe that. I think you're presenting this as like a kind of a like devil's advocate kind of argument, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I think this argument is one that, you know, you've heard over the years is that, oh, well, Taiwan doesn't want to. Right. Like and I think Taiwan has changed a lot too. almost I mean, as I mean, an what's ex- the worst that's going to happen. Well, right? that's going to get that's, invaded anyway. <laughs> well, that's the that, I well, feel you're like it's saying kind like of Ma an Ying excuse. Jiu versus yeah. Tai. Yeah. Like 10 years ago, Ma Joe met Xi Jinping in Singapore yeah. in 2012. And I think the Taiwanese government back then had a different you know, postured towards the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Ma Ying-jeou was trying to open up economically. They had this whole like, we're gonna like kind of lovey-dovey meeting in Singapore, right? And now we're in a very different situation. Especially after Hong Kong. Right, when we were in Taiwan two years ago, you're just asking normal people on the street, like everybody mentioned Hong Kong as something that like really changed their attitude toward China or something they were worried about regarding to China. So I think I think the Taiwanese government is, is is itself in a different place than it was. Yeah. It seems like they've just like been desperately trying to even just just get the name Taiwan in their unofficial embassies. Well, right, that's the true. That wasn't there that big kind of a leaked controversy last a few months ago about Taiwan, the Biden administration talking to the Taiwanese government about changing the name of the the representative office in the U.S. to say Taiwan instead of Taipei. And then there was like a whole blow up from the Chinese Communist Party about it, of course. But like there there were apparently talks about this. You know, you know, what? like how stupid that's going to look in 2027 or whatever, like when China invades Taiwan. And then we look back and like we were fighting about what to name the Taiwan embassy. Right. Like it just seems like such a. I don't think they were fighting. I think it was like, like a discussion that w- was like, it looked like they were going to do it. I don't know. I mean, Ian, maybe you know more about this than we do. No, I, I fully agree. Uh, and Matt, you, you, I think you just hit the nail on the head, right? Uh, a lot of these really petty, trivial debates, these things that, that paralyze effective policymaking and good strategy are going to look really foolish. And I think they already look foolish 
in view of the magnitude of the threat. And again, this is not just about China and Taiwan. This is something that affects all of us. Uh, Taiwan is actually essential for our own national security. It's essential for the entire uh, security architecture of the of of the region, the Indo-Pacific region, and the world more broadly. We all rely on Taiwan's chips, for example, uh, and that impacts our economy directly. Taiwan's our tenth largest trading partner, which is amazing given its its size. You know, it's it's a small country of twenty three million people, and yet it's our tenth largest trading partner. That, that speaks to how important Taiwan is for American national security interests. Uh, to say nothing of its of its location in the center of East Asia, in the center of the first island chain, right in the busiest maritime and air uh, passageways in the world. And also, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but probably the busiest uh, underwater uh, um, uh, fiber optic cable lanes in the world as well. Because of course, uh, the internet, runs on fiber optic cables uh, much more than, than it relies on satellites, at least the current time. Um, and so, and Taiwan's right in the middle of all that. Taiwan. I mean, you're missing the most important that. reason to support Taiwan, which is uh, beef hot pot. That was somehow worse than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> to you. For for context, two years ago, we went to Taiwan to cover the presidential elections, and we went to Tainan and interviewed um, MP like Wang Dingyu, uh, Ding and uh, he brought us to this beef hot pot place in Tainan, which is their local specialty, apparently. And um, Chris made a joke when we were at lunch about how the beef hot pot was so good that Trump should defend Taiwan if only for the beef hot pot. <laughs> and then... Wang Dingyu's, uh, they posted it on his official Facebook page, and then Taiwanese media picked it up. So the 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 media did a story on a Taiwanese television about how these foreign reporters came to Tainan and said Trump should try the beef hot pot. Uh, so yeah. what was your point you were making before you got interrupted, <laughs> Ian? <laughs> Well, see, I, this is it's such a good story and it's such a great point. I mean, you know, these are the types of things that that our officials, our leaders are losing out on. You know, when they go to Japan, uh, for example, our president, our secretary of state, secretary of defense, they're, they're having the best sushi chefs in the world. Right. When, when they go to England, they're meeting with the queen and they're having, you know, British tea and and uh, the best fish and chips on the planet. And, you know, the, all of these things you would think don't matter. You know, you would, you would think all American foreign policy and diplomacy is, is made, up, you know, made on, you know, purely cold calculations of national interests. But of course, that's not true. We're, we're, uh, we're a world of, of human beings and, and we make some decisions uh, based on, on subjective you know, experiences. And, and that's especially true for politicians. And so they miss out on that, you know, by not having much more normal diplomatic relationship with Taiwan, by not having high level people to people exchanges with Taiwan's government. Um, you know, they're, they're missing out. They're missing out on, on, on the, the good, uh, 
beef noodle soup and um, the bubble tea and all those other things, the things, the softer side of, of diplomacy. But more importantly than that, they're missing out on the relationships and the ability. You know, we had that discussion just a few minutes ago. Well, I wonder what Taiwan thinks about that. I wonder if they would see a more, you know, X, Y, or Z policy decision as a threat, you know, as something that's going to be too provocative, that's going to put them in a dangerous place um, with China, or are they going to see that as something that's going to reassure them? You know, the, the, the answer is we could just ask them. Yes, exactly. But you would have to have a relationship of real trust uh, with real friends to get an honest answer because politicians may just say what they think the other side wants to hear. And of course, this is especially true uh, in some other cultures that are not as necessarily as, as um, you know, straight shooting and as open and as, uh, as wild as Americans can be when, when we talk to, <laughs> to, to other, others around the world. You know, different cultures can be more reserved, for example, um, and more, or more sensitive. Uh, that's true in, in um, Scandinavian countries. It's true, I think, in East Asia. Um, and so to get a good read, to really get to the ground truth, I think you have to have these relationships that are built on trust. And in order to build trust, you have to be able to meet each other in person and, de- and to develop uh, those kinds of relationships over things like, you know, hot pot. Um, and unfortunately, we, we don't have that right now with Taiwan. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a good point because like other than Taiwan being – you know, the unsinkable aircraft carrier that defends the first island chain and all that. It's like the best reason to defend Taiwan against an invasion is you have 23 million wonderful people who share our values largely, uh, believe in freedom and democracy, uh, and have their own like amazing rich culture that would be wiped out if China invaded the way that the Communist Party wiped out China's culture in mainland China. Or what what they're doing in Hong Kong right now. Yeah. Or Xinjiang or Tibet or anywhere. Right. And if you've never been, if you've never been to Hong Kong or Xinjiang or Taiwan, if you've never met the people who actually live there, then it's very easy to have a, a callous approach and to just think of them as an abstraction instead of as fellow human beings that are just like you. Um, and in many cases, share your fundamental beliefs and values and principles, and in some cases, are your good friends. Uh, if that's not the case, and I think it's certainly not the case for the vast majority of people uh, in the U.S. government and in other democratic governments around the world because they don't go to Taiwan, um, then it, it's easy to see it all as something just abstract, something distant. Um, it's not personal. Uh, there's no emotion attached to your policy. And, and I think there's something really unfortunate about that. And I, I think it's it's very problematic. So my advice to, to President Biden, who's presumably watching this, is pick up the phone, call President Tsai Ing-wen, invite her to the White House, share some bubble tea, you know, and just, just have a chat. That's yeah, if, if we can invite the Dalai Lama to the White House, and, and by the way, I think the U.S. should be doing that more often. Um, then why would we not invite a country like Taiwan, the leader of a country like Taiwan? I mean, talk about a democratic, pro-American success story. Uh, it's really amazing how far Taiwan 
has come. Uh, you know, Taiwan is in many ways it's it's a political miracle. Uh, if you look at where they were, where they came from, and where they are today, uh, it's one of the greatest successes, uh, really, in modern history politically. Um, and it's it is unfortunate, I think, that that our government and their government don't have much closer relationship. And unfortunately, and and that would be true in any case. It's even more worrisome given the threat that Taiwan faces and given the threat that, that by way of extension, we as a country face uh, and the fact that we share a common enemy and a common rival uh, in the Chinese Communist Party. And yet we're not standing shoulder to shoulder. And in, in many cases, we're not even talking to each other. Right. But I mean, ironically, if Taiwan wasn't facing this imminent military threat, we probably would establish normal diplomatic relations with them because why not? Well, you would think so, right? Um, but if you look at the 1990s, for example, why, why did the United States government treat Taiwan like a pariah in the 1990s? You know, after the Soviet Union came unglued and, and cracked up in 91, and we now have what President Bush at the time called a new world order that was going to be based on you know, liberal American principles and values, and we're going to recognize former Soviet states as free and independent sovereign countries. Why did we not do that with Taiwan? Um, because Wall Street wanted access to the China Bush. market and convinced, well- Bush himself loved China and the CCP. You're talking about HW. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in the 90s, right? Because HW Bush ended his presidency in 92, and then you had Bill Clinton- from 92 to, or 93 till, uh, you know, into 2000, essentially, right? So I think what happened is Wall Street uh, convinced the Bill Clinton administration that what we ought to do is establish warmer relationships with the PRC. Uh, and in order to do that, like during the time when Taiwan was transforming from this military dictatorship to his miraculous democracy, that had to be ignored because that would have affected our ability to do the kind of business with China that a lot of these big companies wanted to do. And I think that, you know, we live in a country where Wall Street has an enormous influence on government policy. And that's like, we, we didn't have those interests in Taiwan business-wise. And I, I think that's probably the simplest explanation for it. No, I think the CCP had some more direct lines to the Clintons than just Wall Street. But that's besides the point. That, there was that- um, The whole Chinagate thing. Yeah, Chinagate, which was feels so long ago. But, Doesn't it? I mean, but it wasn't just the Clintons. I went back a, a couple of years ago and read the congressional record for when the debate was happening about whether to uh, grant China most favored nation status permanently, which is- like trade status where you no longer have to renew every year and there would no longer be any human rights debate in Congress about uh, China's human rights policy before we granted this trade status to China. And, you know, Senator Biden was making a speech about how we should decouple trade from human rights because, you know, that's what's best for the Chinese people and what's best for the American people. I mean, that wasn't something that was just the prevalent thinking at the time. Yeah, there were a lot of very, you know, in retrospect, 
at the time, what seemed wise, because a lot of those ideas, obviously, at the time seemed wise, and there was a broad and very deep consensus, I think, on both sides of the aisle that our China policy should be what it was at the time. Uh, but in retrospect, you look back on some of those wild assumptions that were made and the bets. Really, it was a gamble, right? The bets that were made, and they look feckless, you know, uh, in, in retrospect, you know, in the afterlight, uh, knowing what we know today, all of those assumptions about China's future have been falsified by events. And so now we're stuck with a with a with a policy community that still is in many ways has its hands tied by those old assumptions that were made and all the policies that came along with those assumptions, which have been falsified by events, um, and now trying to trying to break free of some of those old fetters. And it's very difficult. Uh, it is pretty remarkable how slowly um, our you know U.S. government departments have been able to adapt. Uh, to the new guidance that apparently they're getting um, from from the leadership. I, th I think it is interesting. And I wonder if, you know, what you were talking about before, Ian, when you saved us with the bit about the beef hot pot, about, you know, making people to people connections uh, with Taiwan and how much of a difference that would make. I feel like the Chinese Communist Party has really been able to use that uh, and in their favor when it comes to uh, you know, policy people when it comes to government officials in the U.S., where so many of people have, even on state levels, right, have gone to China on these economic junkets, and they've, you know, seen the wonderful high-speed rail uh, in Shanghai and the beautiful tall buildings, and they've met wonderful Chinese people, and they've been exposed to this, like, Chinese culture, like, all this stuff that kind of gives them stars in their eyes when they and they don't really they think about that when they think about China and not really the reality of the the communist party i think you know even for people who are more policy experts if you go to china you know 10 15 times a year or like if you're constantly mingling with um communist party officials like you're going to be influenced that's right. It, it is remarkable how good the Chinese Communist Party is when it comes to propaganda, when it comes to political warfare, when it comes to psychological warfare. Um, they are very, very good at it. They can be, when necessary, they can be extremely charming. Uh, they can sign very lucrative trade deals. Uh, you know, companies find uh, business in China very lucrative, at least initially, uh, many do. Um, and then only later do they realize that now they're being held hostage uh, and they have to do what, whatever the authorities in Beijing tell them to do, uh, even if it's nitnoid things like you have to change your website or you have to disinvite so-and-so from, from your meeting or from your board or, or whatever it may be, um, that they realize they're losing their own sovereignty. They're losing their ability to make independent decisions as, as a corporation maybe or as a university, uh, or, or what have you, because they have been, in a way, they've been lured in, and then now they're captured, now they're stuck. And I think that that's happened across the United States. Um, and you're right, Shelley, there, there was a moment in time not long ago where you were not cool if you didn't go to China. 
And, and that was true for everybody. That was true for movie stars. That was true for NBA athletes. That was true for uh, every university president and university program director. Uh, that, that was true for U.S. government officials uh, and CEOs, uh, just really across the board. And those same individuals that could have been going to like-minded democratic Taiwan or to our other allies in the region like Japan or Australia or elsewhere, uh, they didn't. Uh, they went to China. There's an opportunity cost that comes with that. And now, and now we're suffering for it. And I think a lot of those companies are suffering for it. Uh, I mean, you look at the fate of a company like GE or uh, Motorola or IBM, you know, where they've all just gotten eaten alive by their business deals with the Chinese Communist Party. You look at companies like Boeing today um, that they're made to contribute to the success, their, the success of uh, AVIC, who's going to take their market share in the future uh, and is already starting to do that. Um it's really remarkable how what a what a what a cunning job you know the guile of the Chinese Communist Party how flexible it is and how seductive it can be for a lot of these um, business leaders and thought leaders uh, who don't realize what they're getting themselves into until it's too late and then they're trapped. Well, well, here's something I've been curious about. I, I you know, it's. It's pretty clear how China has influenced corporations, Wall Street, and how they've, you know, bought off or influenced a lot of politicians. What I don't get is why we're not hearing more from like all these pro-peace organizations about Taiwan. Like, you know, a lot of times they'll be very quick to criticize the United States for its military its militarization, but never anything about Taiwan. Yeah, it is remarkable, isn't it? I mean, you would think that organizations dedicated to uh, peace, you know, as as an objective, like the, the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, for example, or, or organizations that are dedicated towards a greener planet, um, that, you know, Greenpeace, for example, that they're so quick to criticize the U.S. government. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what we're doing here today. Um that's our duty, I think, as citizens um, in, a, in a democracy. But they're so quick to do that, and yet they stay silent on the actions of the Chinese Communist Party and on the actions of the Chinese government. So when uh, China threatens a peaceful democracy like Taiwan, uh, they stay silent. When China militarizes, well, first when they, they dredge beautiful coral reefs in the South China Sea, and then turn those into giant military facilities, giant air bases, um, how they stay, they stay silent on that. I mean, I remember in 2007 when China tested an anti-satellite weapon. So they, they fired a ballistic missile into outer space and it hit a, a satellite, a very small weather satellite, an old defunct Chinese weather satellite, and they blew it to pieces. It just shattered it and it created more space debris in that single instance than the entire U.S. space program uh, had created in, in like 50 years. And in fact, I think as much as the U.S. and the Soviet space program combined during, during the whole of the Cold War. And yet there was very little outcry from the nonproliferation 
community. There, there was some coverage of it, um, but there was not an all-out offensive uh, against Beijing. If anything, they were very critical of the United States. They said, "Well, China's just doing this because of uh, you know the U.S. <laughs> the U.S. forced them to do it, um, and you know China's wow. polluting now because you know they have no choice." It's it is pretty remarkable. I mean, Greenpeace is in China. It's true. So, are they all a bunch of communists? <laughs> I need a simplified worldview. Okay. Well, I mean, I do think there's an interesting article in the Nation about what the left should do about China. Oh yeah. It's an interesting read because it it shows that there's there's a spectrum of um, people who identify as progressive or even harder left who some of them are more in the uh, you know China's been defamed by the US camp. I mean there are the people who are just outright genocide denialists, but most people I think aren't there. Well, most people on the left according to this article seem to be and we're talking, you know, people who work in think tanks and policy stuff too. A lot of them were on the well there's definitely genocide in Xinjiang and that's bad. But like it's like there was a lot of hesitation about kind of doing anything about it or what you could do about it that wouldn't, in their minds, kind of play into the hands of like the right-wing hawk uh, kind of community that they're thinking about. So it was it was definitely an interesting read. I recommend it to take a look at um, how progressives are trying to grapple with how to deal with China. Yeah, I think it's, it's very unfortunate that this has become a, a partisan issue. This should not China policy should not be a partisan issue at all. It doesn't matter if you are right, left, center, somewhere in between. Uh, unless you're far, far left, unless you're a communist and you believe in Marxist-Leninist thought uh, and Mao Zedong thought, um, or unless you are on the extreme right and you're a fascist or, or a you know a neo-Nazi, um, so you're talking about tiny, tiny minorities really tiny minorities of the American population on the, on the far extremes, uh, unless you're there for everybody else, 99.9% .9 of Americans should be looking at what China's government is doing and should be horrified by it uh, based on, on whatever is your pet political interest. You know, if you're on the right and you're a national security hawk, you should be horrified by China's massive military buildup. If you're on the left um, you should be horrified by China's uh, pollution. Um, you know all of all of the emissions that uh, China is responsible for, not only within China but also the, the dirty coal uh, burning plants that it's building around the world. You should be horrified by China's, China's human rights uh, and genocidal behavior. Um, and if you're in the center, well, then the list of things that that might worry you are it's almost endless, right? Uh, and so it, it really should not be a, a political uh, partisan issue. But the fact that it has become that way in recent years, I think, does speak to not only some of our of our domestic troubles, uh, which are, are natural in any democracy. You're always going to have uh, political uh, bickering that goes on, uh, but also the, the trouble, the troubled China policy that we have. I, th I think we there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, and happily, thanks to China Uncensored and China Unscripted, uh, we're all going to be able to have much better informed 
uh, conversations going forward. I don't know if you guys noticed, I brought the uh, the mug here. <laughs> oh, nice. Hey, that's got the old logo. We should... Uh, we should send Ian a new mug. Send Ian a new mug. Wait, is that... Uh, what about do they call it when journalists and... Some kind of conflict of interest, it like is. buying people off. I, I think. Should I think what actually happened that? is that Ian has just incepted the idea into our minds that we need to get him a new mug. Hey, <laughs> that wasn't very nice of you. <laughs> <laughs> He's learned something from uh, you know Chinese influence operations. Hi, that's right. We thought it was our idea. All I can say is for all the viewers out there, my morning coffee tastes especially good in this particular mug. And, and I don't know that it has anything to do with, with the logo that may or may not be on there or all the important meeting that's behind it or the wonderful people who are behind that particular program. In fact, this particular program, but it just tastes especially good to me. So it's my personal, personal bias. And you too can own one of these mugs. Go to ChinaUncensored.tv slash merchandise and get your China Uncensored mug today. Thanks for joining us, Ian. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on the show, guys. It's great to see you again and um, Happy New Year. Really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat. Happy New Year. I hope this is the year where we, we do stop. make a turnaround. We yeah. do make a turnaround and not the year of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Uh, Fortunately, they're saying that's like 2027 or really. We got plenty of time. Plenty of time to dilly dally. (laughs) As Churchill said, America is the country that will always do the right thing after exhausting every other option. We'll get there. (laughs) All right, Ian, we'll have you on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. You know, it's interesting what Ian talked about, like people on the right should be concerned for national security. People on the left should be concerned about pollution. But I would argue that even people on the extremes should be concerned. Like, I think Marxists should be really concerned about what's happening in China. You have massive inequality. You have workers completely lacking rights. Uh, They have zero uh, control over their corporations. They can't effectively unionize. Um, and you have this, this persecution of people based on their beliefs. So I mean, China is literally persecuting Marxists too. Right. So it's, so, so what's happening in China, it's, it's anti-Marxist values as well. And I'd say people on the far right, I mean, you're looking at what, what Xi Jinping is essentially doing, creating this, you know, Chinese, Han Chinese ethno state and destroying not only China's traditional culture, but also trying to keep Western ideas out. So regardless of your, like, even if you're like this, a really extreme, you know, white supremacist, like you should be concerned. Now I don't, like, I'm just saying that like, there's literally every person on every part of the spectrum should be concerned. About the Chinese Communist Party. Exactly. Well, that's an argument I did not expect to hear. Yeah, well, I'm, I don't think there's a lot of Marxists or white supremacists watching this, but like, just in, just in case you are, uh, you know, I, I may not agree with you, but you should agree with us. We never did get that mute button installed, did we? <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't really sure what to where to go from that because I see your point, but also uh, that's a really awkward transition. <laughs> 
It is. Yeah. No, I, I like to make things as awkward as possible. Hey, beef hot pot. <laughs> oh, man. Actually, when I when Ian was talking, I think it is pretty much a bipartisan issue, the concern about China. The Nation article was more about, because, you know, a lot of progressives think that we need to work with China on things like climate change. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. the John Kerry argument. Yeah, so basically it was kind of how, grappling with how do you oppose the bad things that the Chinese Communist Party is doing while also working with China, which I think is, that's a... That's the wrong framework. That that framework is going to lead to trouble. Yeah, it's like uh, negotiating with terrorists. Like essentially the Chinese Communist Party is holding the climate, the environment hostage. And so it's like, oh, well, we have to negotiate with them so they don't just kill the hostage. That's a good point. I mean, I I would say that the because people, you know, like if you look at it just ideologically, there's reasons all over the spectrum to oppose what the Chinese Communist Party is doing, whether it's ideological or morally, right? But if that's the case, if people on the right and left should easily be able to see reasons why they need to stand up to the Communist Party, what's really happening? And I think what's happening is just human greed. There's this belief that by working with China and by doing what they demand, we will be able to uh, personally enrich ourselves as politicians or as I, I don't uh, think that's the only CEOs. I don't think that's the only thing. Yeah. I mean, that might be what's motivating people like Ray Dalio. But uh, I think, you know, Ian was talking about the problem with how long it takes the policy community to try to struggle with how to change Taiwan policy. I think that's what's happening with China policy now. Like everybody can agree that, you know, genocide in Xinjiang is bad or like the vast majority of people can agree that, but then what do you do about it? Yeah, and I think the, the there was just so much bad ideology, like the Kissinger Doctrine with China. Like I think for so long, so many people genuinely believed the way to make China better was by working with the CCP and by like sending money there. They would get in contact with our amazing Western values and they would transform. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people genuinely believe this is the good thing to do, and now it's hard to change. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, they have the same problem that I have, which is they can never admit they're wrong. Hmm. I mean, I think that's a pretty common human failing. It's pretty hard to admit when you're wrong. Yeah, uh, it's totally very common. <laughs> but I also think that there's something of a death by a thousand cuts thing going on here, where sometimes the things seem so petty and small, um, but then when they all add up, it leads to the Chinese Communist Party having a lot of influence over the rest of the world. Like this is a this is an example. Moleskin, the company that makes notebooks, they announced last year a partnership with Shanghai TEDx Shanghai. And then someone noticed on someone on Twitter posted that there was a difference in how their planners mentioned Taiwan. Like they Whoa. had a planner that had, you know, listed all the countries in the world. And then it used to just say Taiwan, and now it says, now it used to say Taiwan, it might have said ROC too, I forget the exact but picture, but then now it says Taiwan, parentheses, province of China. And you know, that is why it is so important to buy things not made in China. For instance, our China Uncensored mugs are not made in China. Neither are any of our t-shirts on our merchandise site. So if you'd like to stick it to the Chinese Communist Party, don't buy in China. 
buy from chinancensored.tv slash merchandise. Well done, Chris. You're really on a kick today. You know, well, I know we have an upcoming new t-shirt design that will be fantastic, and you'll want to get yours, too, coming out this week. So, chinancensored.tv slash merchandise. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. We'll talk to you next time.